I think that there's a lot of creativity in doing things that aren't, I guess, the normal path. And so you just have to always try to have that beginner's mind. This is the first episode of Imagination Radio, a podcast that investigates the ways we search for meaning through music and life and why people are compelled to create. I'm David Bloom. And I'm Dylan Mattingly. And we're co-artistic directors of Contemporaneous, an ensemble of 22 musicians dedicated to the most exciting music of the present moment. Both of us are musicians. I'm a composer and a cellist, and David's a conductor. But this podcast is about music only insofar as it offers a window into the imagination within everyone. In this first season of Imagination Radio, our investigation of meaning and the creative drive leads us to talk with scientists, composers, a cartographer, a bass jumper, and many others as we ask three burning questions and dive into three pieces of music that Contemporaneous has commissioned. We created this podcast because there were discussions that we felt were important to have, fundamental questions we wanted to explore, and we wanted to open that exploration up to a wide range of perspective. And to you. Our hope is not to offer answers here, but to start a dialogue with our guests and with you. Today on the show, we ask the first of our monumental questions. This is one we think a lot about, not only as musicians, but also as people and citizens of the world. What does it mean to work without limits? It is, it, it, it's an, I mean, it's a silly question to ask because it's an impossibility. Just phenomenologically speaking, like there's only so much that we can do, so much that we can perceive, so much that we can physically achieve as human beings, you know, as people stuck in these vessels. But I think that it's like a useful question to ask insofar as it like can shake up your snow globe. We talked to three guests whose lives offer unique and compelling answers to this question. Things that seem impossible now may not be impossible in the future, and that if we are going to be future-oriented, like organizations like ours are, then that has to be a factor as well. There's so much to take in from each one of these interviews, so Dylan and I just sat down afterward and talked through what we'd heard, and we've shared some of our responses in this episode. Let's get started. I'm Steph Davis. I'm a professional climber and base jumper. Sometimes I say base jumper and wingsuit flyer because they're like different aspects of the sport. Steph is one of the world's leading rock climbers and has done some of the hardest climbs on earth. She often climbs without ropes, but if she does use ropes, they're only a safety measure, not an assist for her climb. She spends her time scaling rock walls straight up to summits that tower over the surrounding land, and then she jumps off of them, either base jumping, which means free falling and then engaging a parachute, or flying through the air with a wingsuit. I live in Moab, Utah. I've been here for over 20 years, so that's to me a big part of me is being connected to the desert here. Um, it's really important to me. You know, there's so many things that maybe you get excited about or inspired by as you go along life, and a lot of times things can seem really out of reach, you know, for whatever reason. 
So I think there's something just really inspiring about something that seems to you impossible. And if you go along your way and you, you kind of take on one of those things and you find yourself doing it, that's, that's an amazing feeling. And it doesn't have to be climbing up a mountain necessarily. I mean, I think we've all had that in our lives at one point or another. And um, I think that's the, the best fulfillment you can have as a human is to, to do this thing that you just never thought you could do. And it's, it's a really amazing thing to be able to look back at that path and go from, I could never do this in a million years to, huh, maybe this is how I could start chipping away at it to one day you're actually doing it. That's just an amazing trajectory. Sometimes people are where they wanna be and sometimes people would never conceive of living somewhere else. But it's interesting to hear Steph talking about where she lives, that place being in touch with the desert as a kind of fulfillment of her being. Right. There is a certain idealism to where we are. We all feel differently in different places. You know, a place is not just a set of physical surroundings. It's It really puts us in a particular mindset. One of the questions is imagining what the mindset is that you want to have all the time in your life and what, you know, what's the place that supports that the most. Yeah, one thing that struck me in what Steph says is the trajectory of taking on something that you think is impossible. I mean, importantly, she, what she's not saying is you see the rock and then you climb it, right? She's saying that there's a gulf between seeing something and saying, oh, that's not possible. There's no way I can do that. And then seeing the same thing and saying, well, what would it actually take? And Steph is saying that just that change in mindset is inspiring and meaningful. I started climbing when I was in college at University of Maryland. It was just so different for me. Um, you know, I grew up playing piano, studying classical piano. I played flute. I sang. You know, I was a... I was a musician as a kid and I read a lot of books. It was really academic. So I wasn't playing in these outdoor settings. Um, didn't know anything about adventure sports. Um, kind of didn't really know much about the outdoors except, you know, messing around the woods as a kid. <laughs> so it was for me, it's this unbelievable world that I didn't know anything about. And I was really captivated by it. And, you know, being a professional student was great for wanting to climb all the time. But then it was, I was at a bit of a crossroads after that. And I just kind of made the break and said, I, I want to climb all the time. It wasn't like it is now where um, it's a very known thing to be a professional climber. Um, you know, there's a lot of really successful professional climbers out there. And so kids look at these people now and say, hey, I want to do that when I grow up. At this time, people weren't doing that. So to make the choice to just go climbing full time, it was kind of making the choice to pretty much let go of any hope of having like a viable future as an adult. Yeah. <laughs> and it was a really big step. But um, I just was so passionate about climbing that I just, you know, went and waitressed and lived in an Oldsmobile and hung out in climbing areas and eventually started going on expeditions. And, you know, that was the goal to have these experiences. When I finished school with my master's, um, you know, I was I was a good student. I I graduated magna cum laude. I was 
you know, Phi Beta Kappa, straight A student. I, I had scholarships to law schools. Um, I actually went to law school for a week before I decided it was time to go. It was truly terrifying. It was the scariest thing I've ever done in my life was saying, hey, I'm gonna stick my diplomas in the trunk and go find a job waiting tables and live in a car and climb. And I don't know what's gonna happen after that. For Steph to say, I've decided that there's another way of measuring life and it doesn't involve any of the things that I've spent the last 17 years doing. It's more than just saying that, it's also like, I'm willing to throw off this image of myself and I'm willing to reconceive of what it means to be a person. Right. You know, hearing Steph say that the scariest thing she's done in her life was to drop the path that she was on at that point, a week into law school, and pursue a life climbing. That just seems absurd to me, because can you imagine what it must feel like to stand on the edge of a cliff for the first time with every nerve in your body saying, don't do it, and, and you take your first base jump? I mean, can you imagine? And yet this proverbial jump in which Steph totally redefined herself, that was the scariest thing she's done. I wonder what, you know, what are the things that if you, if you push your imagination that one extra level and think about what is it that, you know, that really means the most to you in the world and how could you do that thing if you had no restrictions from the, um, from how you're beholden to your past self, what would you do? Okay, we're good. Again, this time with feeling. This time with feeling. <laughs> I'm Sam Adams. I'm a composer and uh, double bass player, sound designer. And in the last um, four to five years, I've been producing concerts. So I suppose I've worn the curator hat as well. Sam has written music for the Chicago and San Francisco symphonies, the Australian Chamber Orchestra, St. Lawrence String Quartet, the Living Earth Show, and many others. The decision for me to become a composer, I think, is like the logical conclusion of many different currents in my life. Um, I come from an artistic family. Uh, everyone in my nuclear family is an artist. Uh, my mother's a photographer. My father's a composer. My sister's a painter. So naturally, I grew up in, a, in an environment where there was a lot of discussion about the arts. That just kind of describes like one narrative of my upbringing. The other is that I've always been interested in all things left brainy, um, which is to say that I'm interested in problem solving. I think that there's a kind of like wonderful elegance that can be found in, you know, in an algorithm or in the way that a problem could be solved. Um, I was really interested in architecture for a while when I was a 
when I was in high school, actually. I went to a technical arts high school in San Francisco and, and took architecture very seriously. There was a point in my life where I thought maybe that's what I was going to do. In college, I spent a lot of time studying computer science. Yeah, I mean, I found that way of thinking, that kind of like systematized way of not only problem solving, but also of like creating or like participating in a, in a mode of thinking that requires logic to solve creative problems. Yeah, I was about 20 years old when I realized that composing music was uh, was like a wonderfully balanced way of negotiating those interests. I've started to improvise a lot more to, to generate material. Um, and I found that a really interesting way to actually create chunks of music or like create even large formal sections of music is by the careful dissection of an improvisation and to like find, if possible, some algorithmic process that might actually underlie what is a very intuitive fleeting you know, gesture on the piano or something. The deeper I get into my own project as a composer, like the, the more in common all of these experiences have with one another, which is like a really exciting idea, actually. Yeah. I mean, if it, if it like continues this way, it just seems to get more interesting with every piece. It's <laughs> yeah, awesome. So when Sam is improvising, that's definitely right brain activity. I mean, it doesn't get much more intuitive than making up music on the spot. But he talks about his deep interest in these left brain logical systems, you know, going back to architecture and computer science. What he's doing here is he's looking at his intuitive improvisations from a left brain perspective and finding the logic within the intuition. And there's no contradiction there for him. They're just totally connected in his process. It brings to mind the, the title of the episode is What Does It Mean to Work Without Limits? And this is, this is a fascinating investigation of that question, actually, because I think in some sense, we think of improvisation as working without limits. You know, if you're playing a piece that someone else has written, you have the notes on the page, those are your limits. If you sit down at the piano, you can do anything. And Sam is is kind of looking one step further, and he's saying, okay, I've sat down at the piano and I've played for a while, and it felt like it was unlimited, but what are the things that are actually governing it? What are actually the limits that I had been working within? I mean, I think a lot of the passion projects that I have are like, they come out of a desire to be able to share more of my music. I mean, one thing about working with orchestras, you know, until you're at the point in your development where you're able to actually like release them commercially, it's actually like a very economically exclusive activity, right? Like I have a lot of, actually most of the music that I've written in the last couple of years, like I can't share on the internet because of various contracts that have been signed by uh, members of the orchestra and unions, etc. I just simply don't have that much of my own work, like commercially available. Um, I don't want to say commercially available, but like immediately available to people who are interested in listening. And that's like a huge limitation for me, despite the fact that I love writing for the orchestra. Sonically, what you're able to do and the ability to engage with the tradition is that is so rich is very exciting for me. But it, it does mean 
you know, in 2018, that if you're going to do so uh, as a as a younger composer, that there is a, a kind of closed door around the work outside of the premiere or you know subsequent performances. This is a really interesting limitation. You know, Sam is writing music for orchestras all over the world, but the only way for people outside those concerts to hear the music he's making is if the orchestra decides to record the piece and sell the recording. And that's really rare, particularly for a younger composer. And the fact that he's working on these passion projects specifically because he wants to share his music with more people, I just think that's such a pure goal. It's not about fame or something. You know, it's not that, like, Sam wants to make sure that he is the composer that everyone has heard. It's, it's, it's an act of generosity. Sam's creating music that he thinks that people will be profoundly affected by, and he's looking for ways to offer that experience to more people i mean i i think with each piece that i've done like the excitement behind it is is to potentially like change the culture if even just a little bit you know to potentially win over some new audience members you know who otherwise don't have a whole lot of experience listening to contemporary music or um, have some experience but have been scarred in the past I'd like to think that the more activity there is within those walls, the more accessible this body of work can be. I mean, just think about how many incredible works for orchestra have been written in the last, like, decade. I mean, it's just so much amazing music. I'm sure that Steph also has some aspirations for for changing the culture in some way, but um, the radical move that Steph made was about finding herself. And it's interesting to think about Sam's push outward and that the limitations that, that Sam has are, are in some sense the same forces that Steph faced of these expectations of, of who we are and who we should be. Uh, what Sam is trying to do is find a way to alter those forces for everyone. My friend um, Aaron Deal, who's a great jazz pianist, turned me on to um, John Lewis's Jazz Journey by this group that he, this big band, orchestral big band that he formed called Orchestra USA. It's an old recording and it's really such a brilliant example of what they at the time called the third stream, you know, the merging of the jazz and the, and the classical genres together. I'm Ed Yim, and I'm president and CEO of American Composers Orchestra. The American Composers Orchestra is based in New York and is the only orchestra in the world dedicated to the music of American composers. It's been around for 40 years, and Ed joined them in 2017. I've worked in music now for over 25 years, it's hard to imagine, and I've worked for a lot of really great storied orchestras and the through thread of everything that I have found most satisfying in the work that I've done with musicians of all kinds, composers, performers, conductors, etc., is um, creation of new work. When we look back a hundred years from now and try to get a picture of what musical life was a couple of decades into the 21st century, it's the work of our composers that is gonna speak the loudest. Um, You know, they 
are capturing what it means to be in 2018. I do what I do because I want to enable creative artists to do their best work. The goosebump moments in my life have been caused by music. As a choral singer, those moments when you're singing something really moving or powerful, performing it, looking for and finding that experience is what's given me the highest highs in, in my life. I mean, that and personal relationships, obviously, family and friends and so on and so forth. But I think my role in running ACO and ACO's role in the community is to be a pipeline and is to give as many platforms as possible to emerging American composers. The unique value proposition of ACO, as we see it, is getting a large symphonic ensemble together is maybe the hardest thing for an emerging composer to do, right? The orchestral form is still the one with the highest amount of barriers and obstacles for an emerging composer. There just isn't that much real estate right now. And ACO was founded 40 years ago to give more real estate to overlooked American composers. And I think over time it's evolved to really focus and drill down on emerging voices. The underlying assumption in that is the inherent value of a large symphonic ensemble as a, as a genre. And I don't think I could be here at ACO and believe in what we do so strongly if I didn't believe in that genre. It's very clear from our interview with Sam and from Ed that they're approaching the same issue from two different sides of that there's music that Sam wants to create and that Ed knows that composers want to create and that he wants to facilitate and that people will enjoy and that people like Ed have had cosmic experiences with that has to be created for some sort of large group of, of musicians and uh, the tradition of that is the orchestra. But there's, there's a huge set of limitations um, on actually creating new music for orchestra and this conflict is a is a big problem and both of them are approaching this with um with the sense that they feel like it's important it's important to try and change that and to make that something possible again rather than just to ignore it and to do something else i think that artists throughout time have seen their role in society at large as an opportunity to bring beauty into the world, which is a very important thing. Um, you know, life is tough and we live in tough times and to hear something beautiful or fun or exciting, those are all things that we need in life to feel alive as human beings. On a more concrete, specific level, I do find that creative artists throughout time have often, not always, but often seen their role as commenting on society as well. And I see a lot of emerging composers wanting to express themselves in these difficult times through works that speak specifically to topics that are troubling us right now. Um, issues of race relations, issues of gender equality, issues of um, the environment, issues of um, 
self-actualization in so many ways of, of political history. Today's creative artists and composers in particular are writing works that speak to the issues and the, and the questions of our time. And that's our relevance to, to society as a whole as, as artists and as people who support artists. I think it's important to note that when Ed moved to the American Composers Orchestra, it was a major career change. I mean, he's worked for major orchestras for his whole career, and directly before he moved to ACO, he was the vice president of artistic planning at the New York Philharmonic. And there's really no bigger job than that one in creating musical programs in the United States. So to move from the top of that world to a much smaller organization in a different part of the sector was almost as big of a change as Steph made in her life when she decided to climb full-time. And Ed talks about this scene after a New York Phil concert where he gathered a bunch of renowned composers along with a younger composer who had a premiere on the concert. And this was an important moment in his decision to move on to the ACO. In fact, it was the aha moment. We all went out to dinner. I remember very specifically with this this gaggle of composers, you know, we all trooped over to Shunli afterward and had big, this big Chinese meal to celebrate. And I looked around this big table of people drinking Tsingao beer and eating Chinese food and talking with each other. And I just had this moment at that very, everything in my 20 plus year career kind of came together. And I was like, this is where I'm happiest at a table full of composers. Like, and I wanna, you know, I've loved my time at places like the New York Philharmonic and, and, and the LA Philharmonic and New York City Opera, but this is where I'm happiest, is being with these creative artists. And I wanna spend more time doing this. Um, and that I called ACO the next day and said, have you found your new president yet? And is it too late for me to express interest? And they said, nope, we're having interviews next week. You know, let's talk. In music, there's a lot of emphasis put on world premieres, performing music for the first time. And you've done that sort of thing in your career, climbing routes and rock faces that no one has ever climbed before. What are those experiences like? That's interesting because that is a big thing in climbing is, um, you know, first ascents. And it's kind of funny because for me, I've always, you know, I've definitely done a lot of that stuff, but I always feel like, I feel like it's more on the personal level. Like it's always, for me, it's like my first experience, you know what I'm saying? So it, Mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter that much to me if somebody did it before or not, but there's a lot of goodness about repetition too. And again, I know you guys can relate to this, of course, as musicians because of practice, you know, like there's a lot of things here in Moab that, because it's my home, where I'll do the same jump, you know, off the same cliff. Like I've done it for 10 years or certain climbs that I really like, or they're good trainers, you know, and I'll go do that one all the time for training or it's really cool. You know how things unfold. 
the more you do the same thing and it's always like a slightly different experience every time yeah repetition is something we can all relate to you know it's not just something that rock climbers and musicians do it's something we every human does even as simply as just the morning routine you know you wake up and you wash your face and you sip your coffee and look out the window i think one can approach any ritual like this with a beginner's mindset like steph says and that morning routine could be a totally new experience every day these questions of patterns and choice are are predominant throughout this episode but of course patterns are an illusion as well and as you say like you know we're you have your morning routine you walk to work the same way every day but every day that you walk to work is radically different from any other time you've ever done it you're a different person you know the experiences that you've had in between have changed who you are and the leaves are moving in a different way and there are different people around you in every spot the clouds are different and there's you know nothing is ever the same we trick ourselves into believing that that there are things in our lives that are the same but to be able to look at even those things with like a child with wonderment is such a it's such a beautiful thing and if you can do that then the circumstances don't matter because there's an endless world of glorious beauty in every direction at every moment i feel that climbing really taught me a lot about minimalism um, early on First of all, on a more material level, because you know you have to carry everything. So with climbing, the weight is a really big deal. And so when you go off on a route, you can't take anything extra. To the point of, on long climbs in the past, I've brought chapstick and gum because I don't want to carry a lot of water. And so that's my alternative because it's lighter. And so it really makes you think um, just about excess, and simplicity, I think as humans, we have a problem with this. I think there's a tendency to always want more um, and to always want to fill the spaces. Um, You know, that's what's happening on the planet right now. And I, I just don't think that that's sustainable. It can't always be about more and about getting more and doing more and having more and making more. (laughs) There's something else that I think is of value. My priority has just always been freedom. And so I'm always asking myself, you know, does this give me more freedom? And so sometimes when you get that tipping point of too much, it actually takes the freedom away. So I guess that's how I measure things. So she says that she measures things through freedom, and I, I do think it's, it's a really, I think it's a, it's an easy trap to fall into. Is what it really is, is to assume that freedom means no long-term thinking. She's willing to bind herself in some ways to long-term ideas of what she wants, and she's willing to suffer some short-term pain to experience it. I think partially because she knows that she's. Um, she's been so thoughtful about creating that path for herself. It brings to mind the um, quote from the painter Agnes Martin, 
who says the measure of a life is the amount of beauty and happiness of which you are aware. In your line of work, there's a real proximity to death that most of us don't have in our lives. And I wonder how that presence affects the way you lead your daily life. Um, I mean, it hit the closest to me when my husband Mario died five years ago, and that was really um, took the experience to another level that I couldn't understand before, um, because you don't really understand these things until you live through them. It's really taught me that, that, you know, I guess nothing's permanent. And again, I knew that, but I didn't really get it <laughs> until Mario died, just how true that is. And it definitely changed my outlook on life quite a bit. I mean, I've always been somebody who wants to be very present in the moment and has tried very hard to live that way, but it really pushed me <laughs> that way after Mario died to really realize, like, you know, we, we're not here forever, and nothing's guaranteed. And um, every day when you wake up in the morning, you don't know what's gonna happen that day. You literally don't know. And so I'm not, you know, of course, it's not like I I can be so present. I definitely have these moments where like, maybe I feel bored or something. And then I'm like, wait, why am I bored? Because <laughs> this could be the last moments of my day, you know? <laughs> it's like, but, but just to have that awareness, I think, um, it has definitely changed the way I live a little bit. Maybe not a lot, but a little bit. Um, and just, just being very grateful of what's going on right now and, and kind of trying to keep that as time goes by. The singular focus of a, of a smaller organization like ACO, the, the somewhat more niche approach, is very refreshing to me. You know, the New York Philharmonic is a great, great institution and they do wonderful things, but they're also set up a certain way. You know, they have to, they have to serve as the encyclopedic museum, if you will, both new and old, because they serve so many people in so many different ways. What I found also is the joy and the flexibility of working in a smaller organization, we can make a decision with a couple of conversations and decide, okay, we're gonna go this way, not that way. And at a place like the New York Philharmonic, for very understandable reasons, those kinds of decisions take a lot longer to, to get to. And so I'm really loving the, the nimbleness of a place like ACO. You know, I, my hunch is that Contemporaneous is way more nimble than ACO is, but ACO is more nimble than others. <laughs> so, you know, I kind of went to the middle ground. You know, our major orchestras in this country have been set up and built around the premise of um, very high level music making, but making very high level music making as efficient as possible. Right. So a typical New York Philharmonic schedule would be four rehearsals and four concerts in a week. Right. And 
And that's kind of built into the schedule there. That's the way they go about it. It's the way that you can mobilize that body of musicians as effectively as possible. But a priori, it doesn't make sense to me that you have four rehearsals and four concerts, whether you're doing an all Tchaikovsky program or you're doing a new evening length work by Julia Wolf. You know, these musicians have played Tchaikovsky many, many times and they do it beautifully. But the flexibility to say, you know, this program really only needs three rehearsals and we could probably sell it five times. Whereas the Julia Wolf piece, you know, maybe there's a, a slightly more limited audience for that. And that's just pragmatism, you know, fair enough. But it could use five rehearsals instead of four, and maybe you only want to do it twice. So the limitations of a major orchestra contract and schedule don't really address those issues. Whereas an ensemble like yours, or even mine, we can allocate resources as needed to the actual program that's in front of us, which I think is, you know, for what we do, a, a, a better way to go about it. It's so interesting to hear Ed talk about the limitations within a large institution like the New York Phil. It's just so easy to look at these legacy organizations and think of them as basically limitless. You know, they have all this influence and activity and resources. So to hear about something as fundamental as the schedule of these orchestras as a limiting factor is really surprising. It calls to mind something that Steph said about becoming minimalist in the pursuit of freedom, where she she said sometimes you realize that the more you have, it's actually the harder it is to change and and to pursue the kind of freedom that she's interested in. And you can see that on a large scale with a huge institution, and it's one of the reasons that I think Ed moved to a smaller one where he has more ability to pursue the things that he's most interested in to have his actions have direct effect. So limitations are both a positive and a negative for me. The positive spin on limitations are parameters, I think, and structure. And if you give a creative artist a structure within to work, I think they come up with creative solutions sometimes when they can't have the first thing that pops into their mind. And they come up with a solution that they wouldn't have come up with if they hadn't had to face that obstacle. On the other hand, I have always, as an artistic planner, believed in the power of starting the conversation with as wide a view as possible. And you wanna, you wanna get all the ideas out on the table and say, let your mind run wild and let's see what we come up with. And then you edit and you bring back and you say, well, we can't do this, but what if we did this, you know? And you have that dialogue and you have that creative conversation. And that's, that's a joy. That, I mean, when you, when you find a composer and a performer who really want to work that way, that's the best. I mean, if we were strictly limited by what has been, there's so much music we wouldn't have. So much music that we wouldn't have. I mean, a lot of Berlioz was just cuckoo for the time. You know, never mind Mahler. I mean, this, the forces that Mahler called for, if he were faced with a really narrow-minded administrator, you know, we wouldn't have those pieces. Oh. 
what seems out of bounds now may not be out of bounds 50 years from now. And you have to take that into consideration also. We think of performing arts organizations as serving a community of audience members, but for Ed and the ACO, that's not enough. That That is a critical part of what they value, for sure, but their mission is also about serving composers. And then an even larger vision is to serve the future of American music and to push the whole art form forward. Right. I mean, I think it all comes back to the desire to change the culture. And that's a larger goal than just providing a concert for people in an audience, uh, even than providing an opportunity for composers. It's about offering artists and composers that chance to take risks and to hope that by giving artists that chance that they will indeed change the culture. And it takes takes me back to the to the title of the episode, the question, what does it mean to work without limits? The limits are the culture, which is not to say that, you know, culture is just a set of limitations, but, you know, the limitations on our lives are are fundamentally these these expectations, the patterns of our culture. And so to change the culture, that's the question of how do you do something to change the limits? It made me think of this uh, classic moment in Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan. Captain Kirk is the only person who's ever the only person who's ever ever successfully succeeded on this test. Sir, may I ask you a question? What's on your mind, Lieutenant? The Kobayashi Maru, sir. Are you asking me if we're playing out that scenario now? On the test, sir. Will you tell me what you did? I would really like to know. Lieutenant, you are looking at the only Starfleet cadet who ever beat the no-win scenario. How? I reprogrammed the simulation so it was possible to rescue the ship. What? He cheated. I changed the conditions of the test. Got a commendation for original thinking. I don't like to lose. Then you never faced that situation. Faced death. I don't believe in the no-win scenario. For each of the people that we've talked to in some ways, they're changing the parameters of the test. You know, if, if we're given this life, then the question is, uh, you know, the question isn't, well, how do you solve that problem? It's how do you change the parameters of the life to make it the one that you want? To boldly go where no man has gone before. I took a road trip with my best friend <laughs> a couple weeks ago and we went up to Bend, Oregon and then up to Portland and then out to Tillamook, Oregon and then down the Oregon coast and we attempted to listen to the complete Beethoven string quartets recorded by the Artemis Quartet and we made it to the end of 74 and then I think we were already in like Humboldt County by then so we didn't we weren't able to listen to all of them um, by the time we got back to San Francisco but since then since my return I've been slowly making my way through this they're incredible recordings Artemis is amazing
for me, like the, the, the moments in my life where I felt like I was actually taking real risks is when I somehow was like, and this is so difficult to talk about. This is like the most difficult thing to talk about, but um, where I was achieving like immediacy of expression. The biggest risks that I've taken have been these like extremely direct, uncomplicated gestures, which attempt to kind of evangelize the obvious, you know, like the moments where I'm trying to inframe something that is incredibly simple. Like to me, that feels like an incredibly risky thing to do because there's nothing worse than like, you know, being incredibly expressive and then having a bunch of people think that you're an idiot. It's like the worst feeling, you know? <laughs> um, and I think in order to achieve something that's that's made of real self-evidence, you need to you need to be able to take a risk to get there. I feel. That, to, that to me is, you know, that's what the goal is. I, I want to be able to create the kind of music that's like frustrating for other people to encounter because I because they feel like why the fuck didn't I think of that <laughs> you know I'm sure that you guys have had this That's several times in your life where you encounter something that it's so ridiculously self-evident that it's like why how come no one like how come no one thought of this before you know this is so simple I think that's so powerful and something that we can all relate to Sam's talking about doing this as an artist but I think what he just said just rings very true in all walks of life that the moments when you feel most vulnerable are the ones when you allow someone to see the most fundamental simple emotion that you might have in any one moment and um, you know those those moments can be terrifying it, it can be terrifying to to look someone else in the eye and say i love you much easier to interact with people if you're not really sharing what you're actually feeling and uh, or certainly it's less it's less scary to do so because you're less vulnerable and that, that's true as an artist as well and in terms of what you create in fact i think it's it's particularly true because when you create music you're asking other people in a sense to to feel something that you have felt or at least to feel something that you've created and that's quite something to ask of somebody else. And so to ask somebody to do that for an emotional experience that you had that is just so simple and so basic, that's, that's a level of vulnerability that, that can be terrifying. And so that, I think that risk that Sam's talking about here is something we can all really understand. I might entertain the idea of spending the whole entire rest of my life working on like the perfect three second phrase of music. You know, like I used to work for Fred Hirsch uh, the jazz pianist when I when I was living in New York City and we were hanging out at his studio and he talked about being at um, McDowell Colony and how he had met Meredith Monk there um, uh, she was leaving and he was coming and he asked her like how did it go and she had been there for like a couple weeks maybe three or four weeks um, and she was like oh it was great like I like I came up with like one phrase you know that was like good enough for her you know that she had spent all this time and she had like found this like wonderful nugget of music 
Like, I love that idea. Like, to me, that was such a beautiful, beautiful idea. And, like, maybe maybe that would be my answer. It's like, I just spend the rest of my life getting the... <laughs> That's great. Like, finding that, like, like, perfect grain. Well, I mean, a really wonderful idea can last a lifetime. How small I thought it takes to feel a whole life. Anyways. <laughs> So, Dylan. Yes, David. What does it mean to you to work without limits? That's a bogus question, David. <laughs> oh, is it? <laughs> there are two ways that I see this question, I guess, and and we we encountered them both in our interviews. Um, and one is one is on the personal level, and one is um, on the social level. And one of the issues is how to bring those two together. Steph's work is on the personal level and Ed's work is on the social level and Sam's work is dealing with a little of both. I think that on the personal level, Sam, Sam questioned the, uh, the idea of limits. I think I want to also question the idea of work. <laughs> really on the personal level, what I'd like to imagine, I'd like to look past an idea of uh, seeing ourselves as some sort of product that has to do with work. And that has to do with what we make and with production. And, and those are limits that govern many of our lives. I think almost thinking about just what does it mean to exist without limits. That to me is the fundamental personal question. I just think it makes so much more sense to think of beauty as a verb. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, um, we've been told, but I think Really what it is is that there, there's a skill, there's an ability to feel beauty. That's the ability that I want to be able to have and to be able to point in every direction at every moment. And so that's, to me, what it would mean really to exist without limits. But then the other part of that, to work without limits, that that's the cultural, that's the social. And I, I, I like being with people and I want to live in a world where where I can rely on other people and they can rely on me. And that's, and so in that sense, you know, the idea of what I want to do with my work, what I want to share with other people, that's also an ideal that I think is, is crucial to, to look past the limitations that already exist because people could be happier. There's more happiness to be had in the world by other people. And certainly if you accept the world exactly as, as it is, there's no reason to think that there will be any more happiness than there is at the moment. And I think that that absolute acceptance of the world on a personal level and the refusal to accept a lack of happiness for people around the world on a social level is, um, that's, that's the work. So that's what it means to work without limits for me. So David, <laughs> what does it mean to work without limits to you? I was afraid you were going to ask that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we talked to three people for this episode who came up with really radical answers to this question. And 
I think it's easy to look at these extreme cases and just kind of wonder how the rest of us could possibly attempt something so radical, but a couple of really basic takeaways come to mind as I'm considering these lives, and the first one is just that it's important to ask this question, you know, what does it mean to work without limits? What does it mean to exist without limits? I think it's important for everyone to imagine what that might look like for them, even though it it is impossible that we would ever totally work or live without limits. And th the other one is that when we're considering this question, we should bring to it our creativity. Because if we're not creative in answering this question, we just sort of get a default answer, you know, just the, the answer that we see around us. And maybe the word answer doesn't quite get at what the goal is here. The, the important thing is just to consider the question and creatively. And I think the word creativity implies something exceptional, like something that only artists have, but that's really not what I'm talking about here. I'm, it's something we all have within us as just a part of being human. And so for me, working or existing without limits would mean living in a world where everyone, not just artists or composers or rock climbers, everyone fosters their imagination and creativity. And it sounds so simple, but it's actually a really lofty goal because of this misconception that only some people are creative. And that's why I do what I do as a conductor, because with every performance, I'm aiming to inspire creativity in people and to play some small role in making that ideal world where we're all creatives. We deal in a very ephemeral product, and so to a certain extent, the measure of success is going to be ephemeral also, and we have to we have to be comfortable with that. The interesting thing about this this question is like I feel oftentimes that like the the answer ends up becoming like super big and, and ambitious in scope. But like, what if the answer was actually something that was like really I don't know like a like a delicate small gesture? I think that there's a lot of creativity in doing things that aren't the normal path, and so you just have to always try to have that beginner's mind, especially as you become better at the things you do and maybe become successful. It's, I think it's really helpful to always have that beginner's mind and not to assume that you're necessarily good at things or that you know how things are going to go. And just to be really open to um, maybe things going away you didn't quite expect. I would say like the last 10 years, <laughs> the main music I listen to is like electronic music and EDM. I love it. It really is about the, per the perception of time. 
because that's such a big thing with um you know most of the stuff that I do it's either like this long drawn out thing that you just kind of have to like get through or it's something super intense that even while it's happening like time is expanding in it so and I think that that's what I love Imagination Radio is a production of Contemporaneous, a New York-based ensemble of 22 musicians dedicated to the most exciting music of now. Hear more music, sign up for our email list, find upcoming shows, and learn more at contemporaneous.org. This episode was produced by David Bloom, Dylan Mattingly, and Charles Van Tassel. Our interns were Nora Grace Flood and Maeve Shallard. Thank you to our guests for this episode, Sam Adams, Steph Davis, and Ed Yim. For a complete listing of the music in this episode, check out the show notes. You can subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts or stream it online at contemporaneous.org slash imagination radio. And please take a moment to leave us a rating or review and share this podcast with your friends. It really helps people find the show. You can stay in touch with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On all three, we are at eContemp. Thanks for listening. One last thing. The world recently lost a legendary conductor, composer, and teacher. Harold Farberman made a career championing American music around the globe, and you heard his work in this episode conducting John Lewis's Jazz Journey from 1963, which Ed was listening to. Harold was a phenomenal teacher and a loyal mentor to multiple generations of conductors, and I had the distinct privilege of being among them. With gratitude and admiration, this episode is dedicated to Maestro Farberman.